Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, the passages in the bulletin. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, two of these, the greatest chapters in all the Bible on the topic of our great salvation and our great Savior. Uh, the purpose, though, uh, that's the focus we would have, which makes sense. It applies to us so personally, but it's really the story of God's new creation. Uh, new creations individually as he turns us from dead sinners into living saints, but his new community, the church. It's, it's to give encouragement to the church in every age that we are God's workmanship, that we as individual believers are and as the church. And even though things may uh, swirl around us and look bad on the outside, if you will, we are God's new community. And he is doing a supernatural work to form us, uh, form us uh, so that people can see the gift of God's grace shown to people just like them, only redeemed and transformed. And it's a, a great manifestation of his grace so we can give him even more praise to see him do this work of salvation in us. And there are no more technical, uh, there may be a few other passages that involve all the technical terms you can imagine doctrinally about what God has done. And that is something we should love and just plumb the depths of and figure out what these words mean because God's writing it in a technical sense, so we want to look at it very carefully and intentionally. But the beauty of the fine print when you get done with it is the big picture and how radically it affects your everyday living and life. And you'll see that as we move through these verses. We're in verses 1 through 10 of of chapter 2. I stopped at verse 7 last time. We'll back up a little bit, but our real focus will be on verses 8, 9, and 10 this morning. Please hear God's holy word as I read it now, starting at verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we can see what you are doing because your word declares it. You are regenerating and transforming sinners. You are resurrecting dead trespassers like us. You are assembling your redeemed and transformed people into a new community called the church. We praise you for your immeasurable riches of grace shown to us through Christ. Please guide us in the reading of your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite YouTube channels is one by a guy named Dennis Collins. He's a, a guy who's a, he's a Texan, and he started um, his career as a Jeep distributor, Jeep salesman, essentially. Then he started getting into modifying them for off-road and for every other kind of use. And he made a lot of money early, and he started turning to another hobby in addition to his being a dealer. And his new hobby began probably 20 years ago. He would try to find old classic cars somewhere in the United States, and he'd take a couple car carriers and a crew along, and he would buy these cars that were 
stored up in barns or out in farm fields. And there's amazing how many of these are around. Just this week, I rode on the Katy Trail with Brian Huff, and we ran by these farm fields with old classic cars sitting in the fields. And it was just on my mind because of this Dennis Collins. These, these treasures are all over the place. And so Collins, uh, in his little YouTube clips, if you go there, you'll see him uh, go to, like lately, Minnesota, and he found 30 classic cars in a series of barns out on a property that had changed hands multiple times. They were farming, didn't have time to worry about what's in the barn, and some cars sat there for over 40 years. He even found an Oldsmobile, a 40s-era Oldsmobile. Um, it It looked like nothing but a rusted cage, as far as I was concerned, but he was convinced that they could do a resto mod on it. A resto mod means a restoration and a modification. It means it'll raise it from the dead and then make it better than it was when it was originally made. That's a resto mod. That's what he does. In those YouTube clips, I love seeing what it looks like at the beginning because it's dead and worthless seeming, and it turns out better than the pictures from the showroom when it was built. That's us. We are God's resto mod, dead in our trespasses and sins. But he made us alive together with Christ. And we are heading towards a glorification that will be better than the original creation. That's what God is at work doing in our lives. It's his workmanship, by the way. So relax. I'm not going to give you a list of things you can do because you can't do it. God's doing it. But when you know what God's doing, it will liberate you in the rest of your walk. It will take a heavy burden off your back when you know who is carrying the load. Even now, not just in salvation, but in sanctification too. Not just in justification, but in sanctification. Do you notice the definitions we read? Justification is the act of God. Sanctification is the work of God. It doesn't say justified by God and sanctified by our hard work. And Ephesians 2 just removes the shackles completely so we can head towards glory in this middle state called sanctification in a way that is with peace and with joy and with actual ability to follow what God calls us to do. No less than that here in these wonderful passages. Why does God do all this? Have you ever wondered? Well, we found the answer in verse 6 and 7. Look there again. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, here's the answer for why, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He's doing all this to manifest his grace, to showcase his grace, to give yet another reason to give praise to him. And the way he manifests his grace in us is both by transforming dead sinners and then turning us into living saints. He's doing this work of justifying and sanctifying us taking the dead, making them alive, and then we are transformed to show it was God who did this. It's not just telling someone, you know, I've come to trust Christ and I'm saved. Praise God. But my life is completely different. My affections are changed. I'm not the same person. Praise God. That's the immeasurableness of his riches and grace and kindness towards us in Christ. The two ways we see his grace on display in Ephesians 1 and 2, and now here in these verses, salvation or justification, and sanctification. Again, technical terms, but trust me when I say that it moves to an area of the most practical application you could possibly imagine, and I'm already hinting at it as I begin. I can't even contain not hinting at how this will help you. God's grace first let's consider on display in our salvation, especially in verse 8 and verse 9. Back in the beginning of chapter 1, dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1. 
Then verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So we are dead. We can't raise ourselves. We're totally, utterly dependent on God regenerating us. We could do nothing to raise ourselves. We're not just sick. We're not just injured. We were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. Not by anything we would have done, and he fleshes that out. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. I'll say it one more time, and I'll say it slowly because it's important to catch this flow. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, the faith is in Christ that's well established in chapter 1 down to chapter 2. And it'll be well established here as well. But we're doing such a micro-focus, I don't want us to forget that. But it's an important micro-focus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And the verse continues... And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's walk through this. So important, so essential for every believer to truly grasp what's being said here. First of all, you have been saved in the middle part of verse 8. You have been saved. Just for a moment to give definition to what it means to be saved. Maybe some of you, as you became a believer, you would say, I, I was saved back in 1986. Or some will say, when did you get saved? And someone listening to that can, say, can sound awful or sound awkward. I have friends who are not believers, have no background in church, and they think that's really odd. They don't get what that means. Well, what we mean by salvation in the sense, or that we have been saved, that under our deadness, we're condemned. Our state of human, our human condition apart from Christ is we're dead and we're under the wrath of God. Rightly, justly, it's totally right and, and true, and God wouldn't be God if he didn't, if he wasn't mad at us for our sin. It'd be no God, he'd be no God at all. So we're under his wrath and everything that's going to come with it. That's in this life and in the one to come. It's misery. It's miserable. When we come to Christ, when he makes us alive together with Christ, we are no longer under that wrath. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from what we deserve to get. That's what it means to say that we're saved. And the term itself would have been known to, those in the, to people in the Greco-Roman world because the word savior was often applied to the Caesars. Um, they were the saviors of huma- humankind, it would say, on the plaques underneath some of their statues. And this is meaning that they are the protectors. They're going to keep you from the hordes that might come into the empire. And we owe them our loyalty and our adoration because... They are, sa- they are saviors. So they know the concept of salvation and savior. And used here, it would be even more vivid that God would save us, that God is our savior. And we have been saved. You have been saved. That's what it means. Now, look at what modifies this salvation. By grace, you have been saved. So what has prompted or activated to save us from God's wrath? The grace of God. We have been saved by grace. Now, divine grace is different from the kind of grace we show one another, or when we say grace, or we're gracious towards someone else. It's far more deep and profound. Um, When I show graciousness towards you, uh, that might be kindness. You didn't ask for it. Uh, You might not have even deserved it, but that's as far as human grace goes. Divine grace, always and everywhere when he shows it, is shown to people who not only don't deserve it, they actually deserve his wrath. He's foregoing his wrath because of Christ and showing his favor to us despite the demerit that we stand with him 
We're discredited in front of him. We're not even. We, we deserve wrath, but he shows us his love and kindness. That's grace. That's God's gracious. Despite the fact of your deserving sin or my or deserving wrath and my deserving wrath, he still shows us favor. Grace is God's favor shown to us when we actually deserve his wrath because of our union with Christ, because of Christ. That's what it means when it says, by grace you have been saved. And it's pure grace. There's no even little small element of deserving that we have before God. We have been saved by grace. And then it says, through faith. So we've been saved. That's what's happened. It's because of the grace of God, his willingness to show this when we don't deserve it. And the way that it's applied to us, the way we receive it, is through faith, through the mechanism of faith, through the instrument of faith. The way that we have faith in Christ is by God giving us this belief or this rest upon Jesus, this dependence. If you would use synonyms for saving faith, you would say rest in Christ, trust in Christ, believe on Christ, depend upon Christ fully. One commentator says, casting ourselves fully on Christ, no weight on ourselves whatsoever. These are words that are synonymous with the the word faith, what it means to have faith. And faith is simply the instrument that gives us Jesus, who we need for salvation. Do you know technically we're not saved by faith? We're saved by Jesus through faith. Our faith doesn't save us. Jesus does. The way the, we're, we're actively put in union with Christ is the instrument of faith. Try to think of it this way. I'm onto the car thing. I can't help it. But when I was changing the oil not too long ago on my lawnmower, uh, where you put the oil in is kind of on an awkward spot on the side of the engine where you can't get to it just by pouring uh, the quart down into it. It'll make a mess. So what you have to do is after you drain it and it's empty, imagine the engine to be us, right? And we need that life-giving oil to keep this engine. In that case, uh, it would die immediately without it. I know we're dead, but follow me. The only way to get the oil to the engine is to use a funnel. And you put the funnel in, and it carries it. You, can't, you have to have the funnel to do it. It won't work otherwise. That's faith. Um, there is Jesus, there is us, and we can be united to Christ only by faith. And so we are saved by grace through faith. That's the importance of faith in this equation. The other thing to recognize here is as I'm describing it, faith is something we cannot conjure because we're dead, Remember? So look at the verse as it unfolds. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Okay, ask the question grammatically. What is not your own doing? The whole of the phrase before it, being saved by grace through faith. The reason why we know it's the whole phrase is because, and you can't see it in the English, but verbs and nouns have, have genders to them in the Greek language. And the whole of the phrase matches the gender of, and this is not your own doing. It's not just faith or just grace that is not your own doing. It's that whole phrase. So for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's all of a gift of God. It is the gift of God. That's exactly how Paul then defines it. So recognize this grace that you've been saved by, through faith in Christ, all of that's given to you by God. So the actual faith you need to trust in Christ, that has to be given to you too. And it follows logically, right? If we're dead in our trespasses and sins, we cannot do anything. And I don't know about you, but 
but trusting in something or really you talk about choosing to trust someone or I'm going to believe you, I, I will have to, I'll depend on, just the way I'm saying it shows a work or shows some level of, of exertion. That, we're not saved by any work. God gives us this faith to lay hold of Christ that we know he is our savior. We recognize him as our only hope. We are happy to depend upon him alone. There's no plan B. We know what our righteousness is. If you say that and believe that, that's the gift of God. God gave you that dependence. You can't conjure it as a human being. None of us can. The gift we receive is being saved by grace through faith in Christ. We know this is true because in other places in Scripture it says the same thing. Recognize Ephesians 1 and 2 is a little bit like stepping behind the curtain and seeing how the production works. Much of the Bible is written in narrative form. It just describes our experience. And I say this because many of us, myself included, heard the message of the gospel and I believed on Jesus. As far as my human experience is concerned, I rationed what I heard. It made sense. And I said, I wanna, I, I'm going to follow that. And that's true. And I bid people to believe on Jesus. I'll preach the gospel and say, you should trust in Christ. Trust in him. And I tell you, and you, you trust in Christ. That's true. That's the human level of experience. But Ephesians 1 and 2 is doing something. It's getting behind the scenes a little bit and showing us how God has worked this out. They're both true. One is the underlying truth. One's the experiential truth. But I think when you know the full story, your experience then becomes much richer, much more impacting, thoroughgoing about the whole of how you look at life and relate with God. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll get there. In Philippians 1, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So the granting to the people of God is belief, trusting. Even David said in Psalm 22, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. Just as an infant, God gave faith to David. He didn't recognize the faith or acknowledge it outwardly till he was older, but God had given it to him. Even John the Baptist wept, uh, leapt in his mother's womb upon knowing that Mary came with Jesus in her womb. God is the one who can give faith to anybody at any time. Now, we call for recognition of the faith, but that's not the same thing as when you received it. And it's verse 9, not a result of works, this gift that God gives. And it's important so that no one can boast. Nobody can take even a touch of the glory from God about any of this. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, uh, it was common for uh, benefactors to pay for temples to be built or statues to be built or even public buildings. And they would have their name etched on it after they did it. We see that today too. Uh, buildings named after the people who give the most money for the building. You see it in academic settings all the time. Um, it's a boast about what they had done to contribute to it. So that's a knowledge, uh, the idea of boasting about work being done was something that the Ephesians would know. Yet <clears throat> this work of salvation, this great salvation, leaves no room for anyone to boast. Early in our marriage, Sherry and I would go back to her parents' house for Thanksgiving uh, for several years. We were traveling from different places. We lived in Wichita for a couple years when she was going to school, then I was in St. Louis, and we really didn't bring anything to the meal. 
Um, we would get there, and her mom would have like enough stuff laid out to cause everyone to go into diabetic shock just looking at what was on the table. There was co- you know, cream of corn, beans, some potato dish, rolls, pumpkin bread. Um, there would be all kinds of stuff you should not call salad that they called salad. The jello salad, pudding salad, macaroni salad. I'm not kidding. There was like 15 different kinds of things, and then the turkey was on it. Now, the only thing I ever contributed is when I walked in, uh, my mother-in-law would say, Tony, could you carve the turkey? I thought at least I could do is carve the turkey. So I went and carved the turkey, and I was kind of the turkey carver for many years. But it was always this embarrassing moment where all of us are sitting, extended her brothers, and everybody's there, the long table's there, and her dad says to her mom, Ramona, you just have done a great job with this spread. Look at all you've done. And it's full knowledge of everybody that she did it all. And you know what she would do? And she meant it completely. She'd say, but Tony carved the turkey. Brothers and sisters, we ain't even carved the turkey in our salvation. We contribute nothing. Zero. Except the sin needed to be paid for. This is not your own doing, verse 8. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we've seen in these first verses, 8 and 9, God's grace on display in our salvation, our justification. Now, let's turn to verse 10. So we can see God's grace on display through our works. I've been spending all this time about our works don't earn us anything, and so on and so forth, and we're dead in our trespasses. Whatever we produce would be an offense to God. Now we're going to talk about how our works, though, after justification, are another display of God's grace. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. After everything that's been said in chapter 1 and all through the first Nine verses of chapter 2 has been about the great salvation we have in Christ. And now in verse 10, we learn all of this is because God's working on something. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You as a believer have been created twice. You were created once in Adam, in your original creation. Then when he borns you again, he started a new creation. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, by the way, God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. It would be our way. This is the outward display of all the truths that have been building through the first two chapters. Now the way it shows itself or manifests itself is through this new creature, you and I, this new community, our church, this church, the church, acting in a way that clearly shows it must be from God. So our works start to show something that has happened inwardly. Our works give proof to the justification that God has performed in Christ. Our sanctification, that process of making us more like God, more like Christ, that is an outflow of the salvation we've been showed, and people can see it, and it it shows it's got to be God who does this. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So good good works are an important part of the Christian life, but we need to plumb deeper to understand what this exactly means. In our spiritual resurrection, God recreates us and transforms us, so now we're wired with different affections that can actually do things that give praise to God. I want to be careful about what I mean by that. Doing things that give praise to God is different than saying it's meritorious that our works now earn us something. They never do. 
No human work ever, before salvation or after salvation, ever earns you anything with God. We'll come to more of that in a moment. We're his workmanship. What does that mean exactly? Well, we're his making. We're his literal work of art. Like an artist would paint a picture, that's what God is doing in transforming us, you and us. The word in the Greek is poema, which means poem. We are God's poem. We are his workmanship. Um, I think of one of the greatest workmen that you could think of in artistic terms would be the sculptor. We don't see them so much today, but if you've ever visited ancient Rome or places where there's sculptures done by people who did them thousands of years ago, they literally had nothing but hammers and chisels. Now, they had specialty tools. There were pointed chisels. There were tooth chisels that gave some texture to things. Um, flat chisels. There was a rasp that was like a, it's like a file. And you would have the great sculptors of antiquity work on a huge piece of stone, a piece of marble, and would for years chisel away to make this sculpture. In fact, there's a a famous story where Michelangelo just started one of his great sculptures, and someone said, what are you doing there? He said, I'm trying to liberate an angel from this stone. And that's exactly what God is doing with us. He resurrects us, and he's working to sculpt us into something that could only be attested to God's grace. And every one of us is in a different place and what that looks like, but I promise you, as a believer, God's grace is at a mighty work in you, and it's showing in the works that he's working in your life and in your heart. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Now, instead of hammers and chisels to sculpt us, to hone us, God's tools to shape us are these. First, our union with Christ. That's the first thing. That's where we're placed into a useful place that he starts to sculpt. By his Holy Spirit's ministry, by the ministry of his word, by the ministry of his sacraments, by the ministry of other believers in our lives and the fellowship of the communion of the saints, by the many provisions he pours out, the many blessings he gives us that we just know we don't deserve. People might tell us we deserve them. Oh, you're talented or you're smart. But you know there are many people more talented than you or smarter than you. But God's put you in a certain place or given you certain things and stuff. Those provisions remind us and he hones us with us when we're his child. And also the trials he sends us, the difficulties that have to refine us. It's like the rasp that the sculptor uses to file off the rough edges. He sends those. Those are the tools God uses for us, his workmanship. What's the telltale sign of a people who are under God's construction? They have changed lives. They have new affections. They love other people. They have empathy and care and compassion for other people. That's a a telltale sign that you have been born again. Now, it's an important, important thing to talk a little bit to you and with you about the place of works in our life. I'll say it a few different ways, to be clear. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ and not by our works. Justification comes by God's grace, not by works we perform. But here's the thing. We are saved through faith in Christ alone, but that faith is not alone. Where there is true faith in Christ there are works. Faith, yes, it's a gift from God, and because it's a gift from God, it necessarily produces works. Justification first, and then after, 
sanctification starts, and that's where the works come in. We should expect to see changes in our affections. Now they may take time to show themselves in many aspects of your life and relax on this. They will never fully be realized in this life. There are three phases we live through as believers. Justification, boom, act of God. One time. Sanctification, the whole of this life we live is in sanctification. But the vast majority of your existence will be spent in glorification where you can no longer sin any longer. The resto mod is complete in that modification. We await that day. We look forward to that in Christ. But now, this is giving us aid in our sanctification when we understand the relationship correctly. I grew up thinking, and maybe you were like this, I grew up thinking that I could be right with God by a combination of faith and works. Believe in God and what the church is telling me, and then go do certain things, and then I could be justified. Instead, I've come to realize through Scripture that faith in Christ equals justification. Faith in Christ equals justification plus works. Listen to what I'm saying now. Faith in Christ means I'm justified. But works will be part of that because God's doing it. It's God's workmanship. He's the one doing it. So I'm looking for it. It's not so much that I'm seeking after it as that God's going to do it. And I'm recognizing he will if it's true justification. I've really been justified. So far, Ephesians 1 all the way to 2 verse 9 has been about justification. Now Ephesians 2.10, where we're looking now, is about sanctification. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 2 Corinthians 5 it says, If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. So, I said to you at the beginning, we're looking, it's sort of like when we gave, uh, this happened when we were at the beginning of the whole uh, pandemic crisis. We're trying to figure out when we could legally meet together to worship. We got uh, like a six-page, well, it wasn't that long, but it was pretty long from the Johnson County Commission with all sorts of legal language. So we gave it to Lance Kinzer and said, could you tell us what this means? In a couple sentences, which is difficult for Lance. It was, ended up being more than a couple sentences, but it was better than what the Johnson County Commission tried to make us understand. Point is, lots of technical language. It's important, though, because it condenses to a reality that you can apply. Lots of big language we're talking about here in these first two chapters. And I don't want you to get lost in it because it heads somewhere very practical. God's sovereignty, predestination, election, redemption, forgiveness of sins, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, regeneration, faith, and salvation. Yes, it makes egg-headed theologians like myself salivate with these terms. I love them. I like to define them. I like to repeat them. But just like you, I'm a sinner trying to battle this life and the sin that besets me in this these truths come to a practical reality that will set you free when you come to grip them. I'm not saying you have to love all the terms the same way I'm describing, but you will love what comes from them when you really understand it. These opening chapters have it all, and these big words are important, but what's practical about them is even more important. And here is how it goes. I shared with you a little bit of my story last week. Now I'm going to finish it off with the real practical upshot of this doctrine. When I first remember caring about God's opinion of me. I was sitting in church. I was growing up in church, and I had always felt burden, but it got really bad in my early teens. I remember just feeling super guilty about the different ways in which I, things I was doing. Then I come to church. I believed in God. I was scared of him, though. I was always worried about his wrath upon me. I knew I deserved whatever he gave me. I'd go to church. I'd pray the prayers. I would talk to priests. I would try to do good things. I hoped that believing in God plus trying really hard would get me to heaven. 
but this repeatedly led to darkness and failure, more failure, try harder, do more. No peace, though. No joy. That was my Roman Catholic existence anyways. But you could fill in the blank with any works righteousness system. Then I heard the gospel clearly preached that if you believe in Christ, you will be saved, that you will be united to Christ. The doctrine of the gospel, very simple, but it was profound. And I knew that that's what I needed. And it relieved me at an entry level that I knew that I was saved. I trust in Christ. I was saved. But I found myself still struggling to love God fully. I was still struggling with all sorts of sins. I couldn't seem to shake. The guilt was different from before, but it was still heavy. It seemed like I traded one set of rules to know you're right with God for another set. God saved me by Christ, but I still couldn't obey him, it seemed like. I could see no change. If I had a good week of obedience, say I did my devotions or I memorized a verse or I uh, helped somebody or, or refrained from doing something I would have normally done, if I had a good week, then I felt like God loved me or God loved me more if I did some of these things. If I had a bad week, though, sinning in thoughts and deeds, I felt that I had let God down and that he didn't love me as much. That was much of my Christian life for about seven or eight years into my, after college almost, I still had inklings of feeling that way. Maybe you feel that way. You know, you believe in Christ, you're coming to church, and maybe you think coming to church is a show of devotion to God and he'll love you more. This is what I've learned from this doctrine that I've just shared with you from Ephesians 1 to 2. God does not love you because you're sitting in church. He does not love you more because you prayed. He does not love you more because you read your Bible this week. He does not love you more because you helped an old lady across the road or you helped someone whose gas tank emptied. He doesn't love you because you didn't swear one time when you could have. He doesn't love you for any of the stuff you're doing. None of it gets any love from God. And here's the other thing. When you sin, God doesn't love you less. When you go out and do something you shouldn't do, he doesn't love you less. Should you sin more that grace may abound? No. He loves you in Christ's works. He loves you ultimately in Jesus. For as much as you think God loves Jesus, that's how much he loves you. He could not love you any more than you could possibly earn. He loves you in the supreme way anyone could love anyone else. That's secured in union with Christ. You are liberated from thinking you got to do stuff to make God love you more. You can't make him love you more than he loves you. And you can't make him stop loving you because he puts you in Christ. So what are your good works? When you do good works, when you obey God, that's proof that God loves you because you couldn't do it on your own. His love produces good works in you. You do anything, any act of generosity or compassion or empathy or obedience is because you're his workmanship. That's just proof he's doing the work. It should be nothing but assurance to you when you do the littlest thing for God because you couldn't do it. It's his work that you think's your work. It's not your work. And when you do things wrong, it's covered by the blood of Christ. So for me, these big words melt down into every bit of my life. Every second of my life is dependent upon the work of Christ on my behalf. And so when good things happen, um, I'm hesitant. I don't take any credit for it in reality, only in sinful moments. And God thankfully forgives me for that sin in Christ. But ultimately, it always goes back to him. It's true. All glory belongs to God alone. And nobody can boast in salvation. Nobody can boast in sanctification, and we surely will look forward to boasting in God and glorification. Yeah, they're big words, but the technical fallout means everything for your life. I once had somebody leave the church after several months, kind of mad at me, because they told me, and I I kept the emails, Um, I always keep those emails, but that one in particular I reread. 
he said, you know, I started coming, I liked it because you, you know, you preach the gospel, but you just never tell people to follow God's commands enough. You're not keying on obedience. Like, you know, there's the law part of things you don't even hardly talk about, which isn't true technically, but, you know, I'm listening to the criticism. And he's, basically, I was not preaching enough about duty. I wasn't preaching enough about what you are supposed to go do. And what I would say to that in response is, I completely disagree. In fact, that's really all I'm doing. What do you mean? Well, I'm convinced that the pastor's dream is to see an obedient group of people to God. People are obedient to the Lord, obedient to God and His commands. I am positive the only way that happens is by preaching the grace of God. When you know the grace of God, God will do the work in you. You don't have to have me beat you on the head over what to do or not do. I mean, we cover what the Bible says about what we should do, and we should demand that of each other. But you know what I'm saying, that the preaching should be so bent on the gospel that you see here laid out in Ephesians 1 and 2, that the natural outflow, which it is the natural outflow, will be new affections, which will mean you will pursue obedience. I am sure the best way to help you obey is to preach this gospel to you. I'm positive that's how you'll be able to say no to sin. That's the way God's ordained for it to be. And it's, it's enough. God manifests his grace by transforming dead sinners into living saints. And we see how he does it here. One commentator I read said, Once we truly understand and appreciate the wealth of the glory of God's grace, only then are we free to love and serve him with grateful hearts as his children and heirs. Our utmost concern for our lives should be to obey God. And the way to obey God is to truly comprehend his grace. Let's pray. O Lord, we have once again read your glorious words. How sweet and awesome is the place 